Welcome to episode 9 of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. This is It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zerman Jr. and this is the podcast dedicated to professional wrestling history from 1870 to 1920. And this week I'm joined back in studio by my youngest son, Caleb. Hello. So, uh, had a little bit of a pause for illness with the last episode, but we're back to the regular format starting this week. And I had said last episode that uh, I was going to talk about Tom Jenkins, who is Frank Gotch's toughest opponent. Mm -hmm. And that actually, I'll I'll give a book update and kind of lead into this, but what I wanted to start the show with was what I just had you watch before we started uh, recording. And I didn't want to go over it twice to kind of give you all the background, but you just watched about five minutes of CM Punk's press conference from after the AEW All Out pay-per-view the other day. And what a press conference. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of knocked WWE up because WWE yeah. is doing much better with Triple H in charge and mm-hmm. I think wrestling fans are excited about the direction he's taking the company in. Yeah. And AEW has a number of issues as you could tell from that press conference. So what this particular one is, if we went into all of the issues that AEW is having right now mm-hmm. it would take us an hour and people tune in to, to listen to the history right but just to say that with Triple H back in charge in WWE there's a lot of unrest in AEW because a lot of Triple H's people got released mm-hmm. under Vince but now that Triple H is back in charge they kind of see the grass as being greener over there yeah and there's some infighting in the back but this particular incident I wanted you to to see and to discuss and because you're now in management you've got a little bit of background with management as well so what was referenced there was when CM Punk came into the company probably about a year and a half ago now I'm not going to look it up it's 18 months to two years ago Colt Cabana who is Scott Colton who he was Mm -hmm. references in that press conference and he used to be very close friends and over a lawsuit and some other things where they were initially sued together, they had a falling out. Who knows right. what the real story behind all of it is. Mm-hmm. But when he came into the company, a lot of people said, oh, Colt Cabana's going to be fired. Yeah. And some people have said that he demanded that. Well, he didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying he didn't. He says he didn't. Tony yeah. Khan is at least backing him up on that he yeah. said he didn't. And he didn't get fired. Yeah. So when Tony Khan bought Ring of Honor, mm-hmm. Colt Cabana went over to Ring of Honor. He's yeah. just not in AEW anymore. But he still has a job. He didn't get fired, yeah. so to speak. Well, as I was telling you, because CM Punk is the world champion now. Yeah. Adam Page, who was friends with three of... there was When AEW was formed by Tony Khan... Mm-hmm. He appointed four wrestlers executive vice presidents. Okay. And that's probably one of the decisions he made in the beginning that probably wasn't too Mm -hmm. wise. Because usually 
even with Dusty Rhodes, who's probably the greatest booker of the 80s, it's between him and Pat Patterson, yeah. who was the greatest booker in the 80s. Pat was no longer wrestling, mm-hmm. but Dusty Rhodes was. Yeah. So that's usually always a bad idea to have an active wrestler be your booker. Yeah. Because they are loath to give up the top spot. Dusty didn't book himself with the championship very often, mm-hmm. but he always booked himself at the top of the card. Yeah. And he was probably the biggest star in wrestling besides Ric Flair at that time. But it still creates a lot of animosity in the dressing room because people think they're not getting their fair shot right. because the booker keeps putting himself at the top of the card. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. as soon as we start talking, my oh, yeah. my text starts going off like an FM radio station. <laughs> but so these three executive vice presidents he's talking about yeah. and the press conference is Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks, Matt mm-hmm. and Nick Jackson. Right. And their friend is Hangman Adam Page, okay. who at the time was the world champion. And what I told you, because the mm-hmm. only one he named by name was Adam Page. Yes. And the reason he was so mad about that, you can look it up if you want this week. It's a, about a five-minute clip. Okay. But just look up Hangman Adam Page, CM Punk promo, mm-hmm. and it'll be the promo before that pay-per-view where Punk beat him for the title. Yeah. And it'll be easy. It's about 10 minutes, and Paige is extremely angry. Because if you see CM Punk looking confused, going, I don't know what you're so angry about. Yeah. It's because Paige went into business for himself. That was not supposed to be the way that that came off. Yeah. And that's why Punk looked so confused. Was It wasn't supposed to come off that way. And he was kind of caught flat-footed. And it was... He recovered very well, but mm. it wasn't supposed to be talking about what a horrible person he was in the back and all of this stuff. Yeah. And that was all because, supposedly, Adam Page was sticking up for Colt Cabana. Oh. Who, who I remind you, was not fired. Correct. And was just at another company. They have the match. There's really mm. no problem. It should have been dealt with then. Yeah. Because people didn't catch on that he went into business for himself. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like it was odd and he had lost his place. Yeah. And Punk is so quick, he kind of recovered it a little bit there at the end. So you just thought, oh, Hangman lost his place. He's not used to being in these big spots. Yeah. And CM Punk recovered for him. No, he went into business for himself. So when CM Punk came back from his injury, he did the, the same thing mm-hmm. to Hangman Adam Page. And that, that's been all in the the news and I've there yeah. been criticism both sides and all which I think is what led to all of that. Right. So in this press conference he was calling out the EVPs mm-hmm. for uh, and who knows if they're saying anything or not because a lot of the uh, reporters are saying everybody in the back knew all about this yeah. supposed stuff so who knows where it's coming from but he calls out the EVPs mm-hmm. In this press conference, there's only three of them left because Cody Rhodes went to WWE, so everybody knows who he was talking about, but he didn't call him up on him. And I pointed out to you, you notice Tony Khan is sitting right next to him. Yes. Okay? Yeah. He looks uncomfortable. That is putting it lightly. (laughs) It's like, blink twice, Tony, if you're being held hostage. (laughs) Looked like he was bracing for impact. Yeah. But he never stopped Punk. He let Punk... And there were several times... At certain points, he shook his head in agreement, or like when he said, I had nothing to do with Colt Cabana not being an A. 
Tony Khan shakes his head. Yeah, he had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Okay, so he's... Remember what I'm saying. He yeah. is the president of the company. Mm-hmm. CM Punk is their biggest star. Right. Okay. So this goes on. They have that press conference. It goes about 20 minutes. CM Punk leaves and goes to the back. Mm-hmm. The EVPs, mm-hmm. the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega, go to confront CM Punk in his locker room. Mm-hmm. And CM Punk is back there with his friend Ace Steel. They've been friends for a long time. And Ace Steel's wife, who has a broken foot. Right. The the only things that everybody knows for sure is, you know, because you know CM Punk did MMA training. He had two yeah. UFC fights. He got beat, and now everybody thinks, oh, he can't whip anybody. No, he couldn't whip two MMA no, fighters. UFC fighters. <laughs> exactly. When yeah. you're in your middle to late 30s like he was. Yeah. That was a that was a big ask for him to yeah. compete with those guys, but give him credit for at least getting. He went in there, he got in the ring, yeah, got his butt kicked, but he got in there and he did it. What people don't realize is those guys that do the exact same thing to almost everybody else in that company probably a lot quicker. So don't say, yeah. "Oh, CM Punk's a wimp" just because he lost two MMA fights. Mickey Gall could pick his teeth with a lot of those guys. Yeah. So the uh, they confront Punk. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, these are executive vice presidents. Right. Officers of the company. Correct. So, the first thing that I would ask is, why are the executive vice presidents... Confronting when the president didn't say anything? Didn't say anything. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would have thought I would have had a conversation with the president, for, but they said that they were so upset, they were talking about leaving. Well, that's your first problem. If you've got yeah. executive vice presidents that get their feelings hurt and leave... When you are in management, you no longer have feelings, and you don't get hurt by what people crit because people are going to criticize you. Yes. You have to develop a tough skin. You know, I've never run a wrestling company, but I've managed people for twenty three years, and you can't get upset and you can't take stuff personally. Yeah, they took it personally. They went and confronted the biggest star in the company, and ended up CM Punk punched Matt Jackson, who's one of the Young Bucks. Right. Ace Steele, who is a backstage producer and CM Punk's uh, best friend, well, best friend, very close friends, right. they came up together in Chicago yeah. wrestling scene, picked up a chair and threw it at the other young buck and hit him in the head, the eye. <laughs> Some people have said he was knocked out, but I'm, I'm hearing no, nobody was yeah. that seriously hurt. And then Kenny Omega and him got into a fisticuffs and... Somebody bit somebody, and somebody pulled somebody's hair. Jesus. In the second one. Yeah. So here you got the biggest star in the company. Mm-hmm. Tony Khan doesn't know any of this is going on. He's out having a press conference. Yeah. He has no idea his three VP, EVPs and his biggest star are back there having a punch-up in the, the locker, in front of other talent as well. Yeah. So then they see the police run in. Well, now he's kind of clued into well, something's going on. Yeah. Why are there police running into the back and everything? They got they got everybody separated. No one was seriously hurt. Good. And when I first heard the initial report, I'm like, okay, Ace Steel is gone. I, I don't care what was going on. He can't throw a chair. Well, now there's even his wife was back there taking care of CM Punk's dog and had a broken foot, so yeah. she can't move when all of this. Yeah goes on so now it's even putting well you know was he just trying to keep these guys away from them and away from his wife who cannot move right now because she's got a broken foot otherwise I'd have said he's out of the pool he's not even a big star 
Yeah. Um, but Tony Khan has got a really tough situation here because one, you shouldn't have your executives in the company no. and your top star having a punch up, number one. Number two, executive vice presidents, they're not acting like executive vice presidents. Executive no. vice presidents don't throw hissies when their friends are get moved to another brand. They don't throw no. hissies when somebody insults them. And I, we can't say they threw a hissy about Colt Cabana that yeah. was Adam Page, but we can say they threw a hissy about what he said about him. And yeah. it was stiff, but suck it up. And yeah. if they're sitting next to the president and any other company in America, if the president and CEO is sitting next to somebody and they're blasting, yeah. and this president's not stopping him, he's not saying anything, shaking his head, even though he looks uncomfortable, yes. shaking his head at certain points, you better have a conversation with the president before you take it into your own hands that you're going to go confront the biggest performer in your company. My question that I feel is, what did they think would happen when they came up to a guy who literally just blasted him right, and buff as hell with another wrestler? Right. What did they think would be the outcome? And, and you've, I don't think, you've never seen the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega, have no. you? No. Omega's muscular, but he's only about five foot seven. Right. The young bucks are very small. Very small. I would say they're probably five ten ish. Okay. Probably one hundred seventy five pounds. Okay. So Punk is not huge, but he's bigger than all three of them. Yeah. And Ace Steel is bigger than all three of them, and Ace Steel is more muscular than uh, CM Punk. Yeah. So, uh, number one, you're, you're saying some of the things that I'm thinking of just from a management perspective. Yes. Number one, you don't go confront somebody when they're mad, particularly mm-hmm. when the president was sitting right next to them when they were blowing their, their top. Yes. What should have happened from the very beginning, and I think would have killed all of this, and this is actually goes back to Tony Khan. Tony Khan should have went there after Adam Page went into business for himself when mm-hmm. they're going into a big pay-per-view. Yes. Going, what are you doing? You're trying to affect the buy rate of our pay-per-view in a negative manner. I will not have that from any performer, much less the person that's holding my world title. Yeah. And I would have said, if you go out there and you perform the way I know you can and you have a good match and you do the honors for CM Punk, yeah, then we'll consider this matter closed other than I'm warning you it better never happen again. If anything untowards happens between now and then, you're looking at a fine and suspension. Yeah. You got to lay the law down, and this is not going to happen. You could be mad. Yeah. You can confront him in the back. I don't care where there's no cameras around and stuff. Yeah. But you don't go out in front of people right. and cut a promo and go into business for yourself. But he didn't do that. The other thing he should have made it very clear is CM Punk had nothing to do with Colt Cabana moving mm-hmm. to Ring of Honor. That's my decision. And Colt Cabana was part of the dork. Uh, order, the dark order, yeah. that is just, they're a mid-card group. Right. So it wasn't like he was critical, and there's a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So him going to Ring of Honor, he could help teach some of the younger guys. Yeah. Uh, because when he wants to, he can put on a decent match if he's engaged, if mm-hmm. he, you know. But the, the whole problem I had with this from a management perspective is you didn't handle the first situation right, which is now Absolutely bled into not. the second situation. But you've got a real problem with your EVPs because they're yes. not acting like executive officers in a company. They're acting like a bunch of guys who have hurt feelings, you know, upset wrestlers is what they're yes. acting like. And going back there and confronting him at that time was exactly, you could tell, he's fired up. Yes. And he's mad. And that's, that's also that's, what I'm thinking. Right. That's not the time to have that kind of conversation. 
Rule one of management, never poke an already angry bear. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let things cool down. You can have the discussion when the cooler heads will prevail and everything. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he's got a big problem with it. And he's got an even bigger problem because Punk is the biggest star in the company. Yes. And he can take them to million by pay-per-views. He can mm. start getting the ratings up. Right. In the millions. But... Omega and the Bucks are important, too, because yes. the smart fans who were the base of that company mm-hmm. when it started, they love those three guys. They think those three guys are the greatest thing since sliced bread. Right. And if you say, okay, I'm not putting up with this. You guys are all fired. You can all walk. Mm-hmm. That's going to hurt them with their base audience. Right. CM Punk can grow the audience. Those guys brought in that base audience in the beginning. Yeah. People got to give them credit for that. I don't right. think Omega is what he was. Omega had some great matches in Japan, but he's 38 right. and he's been injured a lot. That, that Japanese style yeah. beats those guys up bad. The Bucks, I never understood what all the furor was over, but I did like them in Ring of Honor. I think if yeah. they've got the right guys to wrestle with, they're better mm. than left. If they're left to their own devices, they'll do every move known to man in a 15-minute match. It's so fast you can't keep up with it a lot of times. Yeah. But those guys were critical to the success, too. So Tony has got to fix this, and he's got to fix it in a way where... Yeah. I don't know that they need to be EVPs, but he needs to keep them happy enough that they're going to stick around. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, Punk, he really has to keep happy. If he has to make that decision, yeah, he has to let the three of them go and keep Punk. But ideally, he would be able to fix that right. situation. How would you like to be the manager of all of that nonsense? Uh, not at all. <laughs> That's not, that sounds like celebrities who can actually hurt each other. <laughs> exactly. That's what that sounds like. Yeah, so that that was just that was a mess, and that's the the news and pro wrestling <laughs> for this week. All so right. The difference is a lot of this stuff gets out now. Yeah. Back in the old days, they had fights in the locker room that nobody heard about until somebody did a shoot tape twenty years later. Yeah, and it was like, oh yeah, I was in the locker room the day those guys had it, because there was a match um, from Mid South Wrestling, which. That's probably the stuff I'm going to have you start watching is Mid-South and lower okay. class. I didn't get Mid-South until 1986, mm-hmm. and their boom period was really at 83 and 84, yeah. 82. 82 was a good year for them. Um, I didn't. They, 81 is not available on the network, just a couple of weeks of it, but 81 right. was a good year for them, too. I got world class. So when wrestling the chase went away in '83, mm-hmm. we had world class a little bit before that. Yeah, and that was my favorite wrestling for a long time. Right. But in the Mid South, the reason I did that, you know, us historians, we like to let our minds wander a bit. Yeah. But what it triggered my mind was Paul Orndorff was wrestling a guy. Um, was it Hacksaw Higgins? Big burly guy. Yeah, I think it was. He, he was Hacksaw Higgins later. When he was wrestling him then, he was just something Higgins. Yeah. Big burly guy. Paul Orndorff does his finisher, the pile driver. Boom. Mm-hmm. Pins him. Guy gets up right away. Yeah. You don't get up from a pile driver right away. You know, you're selling that. Pile driver is one of the most devastating finishers right. back in the day. He gets right up and rolls out of the ring. <laughs> and they say... 
Paul Orndorff was so bad. So he doesn't do anything to them. They go back into the dressing room. Paul Orndorff walks up to him, slaps him right across the face, and tells him, if you ever get up from my finisher like that again, he goes, I'm going to bring you back here to this uh, locker room. And, be, and he said the guy apologized to him. He yeah. said, Paul, I'm sorry. I wasn't thinking. You're absolutely right. You know, yeah. it happened, but you never heard about it. Yeah. Now it happens. And five minutes later, everybody's heard about it because the wrestlers all talk to these, uh, like the Wrestling Observer and all that. So yeah. you hear about it within a day. That, that, that punch-up would have never got out in the old days until like 20 years later. Yeah. But it was out that night <laughs> that it happened. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about some historical wrestling, and then I will okay. circle back to the uh, pro wrestling card I had you watch. Okay. I mean, pro, the pro wrestling show I had you watch. And as I told you, that was I didn't know it at the time when I had you watch it. That was the go-home show for the Friday card. So we'll yeah. talk about the Friday card, too. But let's get into what the topic of this week's show is is really Tom Jenkins. Right. So I told you I've been writing the history of the American heavyweight title, and it's been mm-hmm. a, a very tough project. One, there were a lot more worked matches than I realized right. when, when I started doing it. And it's fine. I've written a lot about worked contests, as well, work, yeah. contest, work matches as well. But most people who read my books and read my blog want to see wrestling when a lot of the matches were legitimate, which it right. was in this time frame. Mm-hmm. But there were a lot more worked matches than I realized, particularly with Frank Gotch. Frank Gotch yeah. wrestled a lot of worked matches, which isn't really surprising. I knew most of the wrestlers affiliated with Martin Farmer Burns' circuit. So he was Frank Gotch's trainer. He yeah. discovered him, trained him, and they would go around the country, or, yeah, the country, yeah. and they would put on cards for local promoters. So Frank Gotch would come. So if you're in New York, mm-hmm. you you would book Gotch against one of your local guys. Right. You know, you, you probably have, let me make sure I'm saying this correctly, because during the time of Gotch, you probably didn't have a local promoter. If you had a local promoter during the time of Gotch, mm-hmm. this is what would have happened. This is what happened a lot in the teens and the 20s. Martin Farmer Burns was still doing this yeah. in the teens and the 20s. So if Gotch came to a town where there was already a wrestling promotion working, which were few and far between yeah. when he was the champion, but in New York, you might have somebody that was promoting cards at least for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. So if there was a local wrestler, because I know Buffalo. Buffalo is a perfect example. Buffalo yeah. had a manager who also served as a promoter. Right. And he had three or four local guys, mm-hmm. and they would put on cards in Buffalo. Okay. I just read about this one today. This was 1907. <laughs> so when Gotch went to Buffalo, mm-hmm. he wrestled Abe Solomon. It was... This was, I believe, a contest. Right. I think it was the only contest he wrestled in 1908, besides the match with Hackenschmidt. Hackenschmidt was definitely a contest when he won the world title. He goes to wrestle in Buffalo, and he wrestles Abe Solomon. Beats him in two straight falls, in like 22 minutes and 13 minutes. Yeah. The undercard for that were not Farmer Burns guys. They were guys from Buffalo. But realize, this is... These are few and far between because this is before the promotional 
system really develops in the mid to late teens and the early 20s. Yeah. By the early 20s, most of the big towns do have a dedicated promoter. St. Louis had John Contos, and then um, his nephew, who was the longtime promoter, Tom Pax, yeah. takes over for John Contos in 1924. Okay. But they still did. You had a few towns that might have a promoter and a manager, but they didn't last very long. A couple years, and then they would move on. So, but what would happen a lot of times, so say... Farmer Burns is coming to Kansas City. Yeah. And they might match, put Gotch in a contest against like a Tom Jenkins, which happened. Mm-hmm. But if there was, there was usually only two to three matches on a card during this time. Yeah. Those two bottom matches would be people associated with Farmer Burns' training camp, guys that he was training. Yeah. So you might have like a Jess Westergaard, who was Jess Reimers initially, mm-hmm. wrestling with Harry Ordman. Or you would have Martin Farmer Burns himself. He wrestled Gotch in a number of work matches. But you'd have Martin Farmer Burns, and maybe he would wrestle, um, who was the head chief war eagle in their camp for a while? Um, M.L. Clank, who later became Gotch's manager. He was a frequent member of this group, so they would go around. Mm-hmm. Most of those cards were worked. Although, sometimes Gotch did, like when he wrestled Tom Jenkins, who we're going to talk about today, those matches were contests. Okay. But I wasn't that excited about the project because of the the biggest problem was there is no linear history of the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. Yeah. Because the first two title holders, they were sometimes billed as an American champion, sometimes billed as the world champion. It was very fuzzy. The first honest-to-goodness, for sure, American heavyweight wrestling champion and catch it's catch cane wrestling or catch wrestling yeah is Evan Strangler Lewis okay and so I, I considered it before that kind of a gray area yeah and then I I've got a title timeline now that is going to end when Joe Stecker wins the American title but is recognized as a world champion yeah he wins the American title he was setting up for a, a match with Frank Gotch mm-hmm but Frank Gotch gets hurt training for the match, and the fans recognize Stecker as the world champion. The official histories out there actually take it up to 1922, but that was just all promotional stuff. Fiddle yeah. faddle. It really ends in, in 1915. Okay. So that made me a little happier. And <laughs> But I really, I, Tom Jenkins is always someone who I wanted to research more about. He is the champion before Frank Gotch. And he is the champion that gave Frank Gotch more problems than anybody. Really? Yes. So nobody else ever beat Gotch more than once. Tom Jenkins beat him three times. And at the height of their rivalry, when they were trading the title back and forth, they were three and three. Now, Gotch actually had two more wins over Jenkins, but that's after Jenkins was pretty much uh, semi-retired. Yeah, and he was he became the self defense instructor in 1905 at West Point. So West Point, the U.S. Military Academy for the Army, he became the self defense instructor there, and he held that position for like 20 years. Yeah, when he got that position, he pretty much went into semi retirement. He wrestles Gotch two more times in contests. Mm -hmm. I've always said there were two guys that I could say I don't think ever worked a match. George Hackenschmidt was the first one. 
Right. And I said Tom Jenkins, I believe, is the second one, but I have not researched Tom Jenkins enough. Yeah. Well, I've researched Jenkins now from 1897 when he defeated Martin Farmer Burns and became the number one contender for the American Heavyweight title. He didn't get his title shot till 1901. But yeah. <laughs> he was the number one contender for four years. Yeah. Um, until uh, his last matches with Gotch, they were all contests. Yeah. So the two wrestlers, I believe, who did not ever work a match, for sure, are Tom Jenkins and George Hackenschmidt. Yeah. So Jenkins was born in 1872. Mm-hmm. So he's about five or six years older than Gotch and Hackenschmidt. And he starts coming into his own in the early 1890s. Mm-hmm. And the thing that distinguishes him is he is much bigger than a lot of the heavyweights at the time. Yeah. So a big heavyweight wasn't necessarily over 200 pounds in those days. Mm-hmm. Gotch was considered a big heavyweight, and he wrestled between 190 and uh, 202, 208, 208. I think 208 was his heaviest. Yeah. But he wrestled kind of between 190 to His trainer, who was the American heavyweight champion, um, two two reigns before Jenkins, right, was five foot ten, one hundred and sixty five pounds. Mm-hmm. Dan McLeod, who would take the title from Burns, and then would wrestle Jenkins later. Dan McLeod was five foot seven and one hundred and seventy five pounds, shorter than Burns, but stockier. Right. Jenkins was five foot ten, one hundred and ninety-five pounds, mm-hmm. and the papers referred to him as the Cleveland Giant. But realize, most men in this era were five foot four. I was about to say, like, did they even have like a heavyweight class back then? Or most people wrestled heavyweight. You had like George Bothner, yeah. who was the lightweight champion, and there was a middleweight champion. But the middleweights were under one sixty. Yeah, it would only become later when heavyweight was pretty much two hundred pounds and over. And then when yeah. you get into the mid fifties, it's like two twenty right. and over is like heavyweight. People that weighed less than that were considered light heavyweights. But yeah, you had Bothner who was a lightweight and he was like one thirty five, one forty five. Yeah. And there were some other guys that wrestled that. Uh Billy Sandow, Ed Strangler Lewis's manager, was a lightweight wrestler. Mm-hmm. And then there was a middleweight champion. Uh, Mike, I cannot remember his last name right now. He wrestled with Theodore Roosevelt when Theodore Roosevelt was the governor of New York mm-hmm. he used to have mats in uh, the governor's mansion yeah. and this because he lived in New York like Bothner lived in New yeah. York too he became the normal New York referee for a long time yeah. after he was lightweight champion he would come by the governor's mansion three times a week because they didn't when you're doing a yeah. lot of legitimate contests you're not wrestling every night like you do today well, they don't do that today either, like you did in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. They would wrestle like an MMA schedule, you know. Mm-hmm. If they wrestled six times a year, that was a lot of matches during that time. Yeah. So as part of his training, he would come to the governor's mansion and wrestle with Theodore. And Theodore Roosevelt always said, he was a much better wrestler, but because I was 200 pounds, I gave him a good workout. Because he yeah. had to move him around. <laughs> Roosevelt was 5'10", 200 pounds, so he yeah. was... You had to move him around, didn't it? <laughs> that gave him a good workout. Um, so Jenkins starts coming into his own, and he is considered huge. Yeah. He has a setback 
1898. He wrestles a guy named Yusuf Ismail. Yusuf Ismail is the original Terrible Turk. Oh. So he came to the United States for six months in 1898. Okay. And during that time, he wrestled four matches. He won three of them. The Mm -hmm. fourth one, he was disqualified. So they used to wrestle. They didn't wrestle in a ring. They would wrestle on a mat or a heavy carpet put on a floor. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they put that on a stage so you could see. So like the 1915 New York International Wrestling Tournament Mm -hmm. that I wrote about in the Mass Marvel book. Yeah. That was on the stage at the Manhattan Opera House on a mat. Yeah. Well, this was up on a stage like that. And I think it was a theater. I don't think it was an opera house. And but the thing is, eight feet above the floor, the orchestra pit. There's an orchestra pit down there. Yes, <laughs> the, the terrible Turk runs at Ernst Grober, hits him, and knocks him. And he lands. Fortunately for him, he didn't land on his head. Right. He landed on his shoulder and his upper back. He was able to suck that head in. You know, wrestling's just like judo. You learn how to do break. Tuck your head. Thank yeah. God. Um, but he landed on his upper back and shoulder, separated his shoulder, and he was unable to continue. They disqualified him. Yeah. Um, but he could have killed him. Can't knock people in the orchestra head. <laughs> yeah, eight feet to the, <laughs> yeah, the, rule number to the one. floor. And he almost landed on his head. Oh, God. I mean, it was that was brutal. He absolutely destroys Evan the Strangler Lewis. Evan Strangler Lewis yeah. had never been manhandled like that. I didn't give you use of his mouth. I think he was between 5'10 and 6 feet. 310 pounds. Right. So back then, he was a boulder. Yes. Yeah. Evan Strangler Lewis was a big heavyweight for the 19th century when he was wrestling. Yeah. He was five foot nine, 180 pounds. Yeah. So the guy wasn't much taller than him at all, but he outweighed by like 140 pounds. And like Rocky Four, he handled him <laughs> like a, a kid. And it's, it's yeah. so broke. Because Lewis thought, I, I'll still hook him. You know, he's right. big and he's strong, but I'm still going to hook him. Because that dude was dangerous submission wrestler and yeah. very mean. But he couldn't. He couldn't hook him. The guy just manhandled him. Manhandled another guy that shouldn't even have been in the ring with him. This guy was sort of like a preliminary guy, so this mm-hmm. was more of a an exhibition. He destroyed him. And then he wrestled Tom Jenkins. Jenkins mm-hmm. gave him the best match mm-hmm. out of all of them. But he couldn't beat him either. I think Ismail beat him in two straight falls, too. Yeah. Which was a setback, but it wasn't that big of a setback because nobody else could have handled him either. Yeah. And Evan Strangler Lewis, you know, was a former American heavyweight wrestling champion. Yeah. One of the things about this book, some of the histories list Yusuf Ismail as an American heavyweight wrestling champion, which he has no claim to that right. championship whatsoever. He beat a former and a future American heavyweight wrestling champion when he was there. Well, but actually, never for a title match. Actually, he beat two former. Yeah. Because Ernst Rober was the protege of William Muldoon, who was the world champion from 1880 mm-hmm. to 1889. But the world championship at that point in time was contested by Greco-Roman wrestling rules. Right. Ernst Rober was probably the best Greco-Roman wrestler we had in the United States at that time. Mm-hmm. But the fans would not accept him as world champion. William Muldoon just wanted to anoint him as his successor. Yeah. They would not accept it. So the fans recognized him as the American Greco-Roman heavyweight wrestling champion. Yes. 
he wrestled Evan Strangler Lewis in 1893 in a mixed styles match. Yeah. Lewis won that and unified the championship. There was only one American heavyweight championship after that. It was still contested in catch wrestling rules. Yeah. Um, because he won. So Ernst Rober was technically a former American, but not this title. He was an American catch champion. He was an American Greco-Roman champion. Right. But those guys were all former... Lewis, uh, Evan Strangler Lewis had beat him right. in 1893. Mm-hmm. Martin Farmer Burns had beat Lewis for the title in 1895, and Burns wasn't even the champion anymore. Dan McLeod had already beaten him. Yeah. And McLeod offered to wrestle Ismail, but for whatever reason, he never took him up on it. So Ismail definitely is not an American heavyweight champion. He has no claim to the championship. Right. And that'll be clear on the timeline that, you know, there are a handful of things that I'm like, this is not a legitimate reign. This is not a legitimate reign. Well, I mean, if it wasn't a title match, then yeah, no. Well, he never wrestled a title match while he was here. Yeah. And then the stuff after 1915, I just consider those to be Jack Curley promotional tricks. That's not a true American championship anyway. Yeah. Because the way they established it was beating a former champion who had no claim to the title for several years. Yeah. But I guess I shouldn't give away everything I put in the book, but there's lots of good <laughs> stuff in there. So. I'm sure. Probably more in depth, too. Oh, it is. This yeah. is definitely going to be... So the longest book I've written to mm-hmm. the point is the Double Crossing the Gold Dust Trio. Yes. That was the longest book I've written... Yeah. This is longer than that. It has to be. I mean, you're covering... And realize they weren't wrestling that often. But even without wrestling that often, you're covering from 1880, 81, to 1915. Yeah. And then I'm going to have to do at least a chapter explaining why the other reigns that they try to claim are not legitimate. It was actually only one person. Right. So you're still digging through 35 years. Yes. Yeah. So there, there's a lot to cover in there, even when I'm leaving out some of the more, you know, some of the work matches that really didn't go that long. And I, right. I might put a couple sentences in there about that. Yeah. All the contests, I go into as much detail as I can for all the contests. Yeah. And so to get back to Jenkins, mm-hmm. he has that setback. Yeah. But he's still considered the number one contender in the U.S. to the point where they start calling McLeod the American uh, middleweight. something that's never existed before right so he's going to try to say you know well yeah i lost to jenkins because he's a heavyweight um and remember jenkins when you lose to jenkins you lost legitimately because he wrestled a contest with you yeah but when he gets to gotch his matches with gotch are famous for being some of the dirtiest most foul-ridden so Gotch had a reputation for being a dirty wrestler, but he right. only wrestled dirty in matches like he had with Jenkins. When he was worried about beating the guy, so the first match he has with Hackenschmidt in 1908 in Chicago, he fouls the heck out of him. Yeah, I, I the post I wrote about it, I put Gotch fouls his way to the title because that's really yeah. what he did. He fouled him for two hours, and Hackenschmidt was so disheartened at the end of that two hours, he just gave the championship up to him. Yeah. Because he was a gentleman. He didn't know how to fight fire with fire. That's not how he wrestled. They didn't do right. that stuff. Jenkins was not a dirty wrestler. Jenkins, when he would wrestle other guys who weren't using foul tactics, he didn't mm. use foul tactics. Yeah. But if you foul Jenkins, Jenkins was going to foul you back. 
Yeah. So, uh, Gotch was famous for headbutting people and palm striking them. So he would come in for a grip with you. Yeah. Like judo. Yes. You're, you're going to do the guy. And you know how some guys would come in and try to punch you with their hands when they do that? While they've got your lapel, yeah. Yeah. Same kind of stuff. Yeah. He would come in and he would slap you when he was going to grab around your head or to tie up with you. He'd hit you with the palms of his hand. Yeah. Or when he would come in, he'd bring his head in first and headbutt you. Yeah. You know, he had uh, Gotch's, uh, not Gotch, Gotch had Hackenschmidt's eyes closed from the constant headbutting in their first bout. Jeez. So, but Jenkins returned a favor. So if he started palm striking Jenkins, Jenkins would palm strike him back. Yeah. One of the matches, I can't remember if it was, I think it was Jenkins. Jenkins got so mad at him. Like, like I said, they were three yeah. and three in their competitive series. I, I I don't hold those last two bouts against Jenkins. He was semi-retired. Yeah. <laughs> he and he wrestled Gotcha a contest. You can't take that away from him. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't. In, but but in their competitive series, when those guys split three to three, one I think it was Jenkins because I think it was one of the matches he lost because you could lose a title on disqualification back then. Yeah. So he lost the second fall by disqualification. He was so mad because I think Gotch came in with one of those headbutts. Whatever. He they they said I remember he kicked him or something. He kicked him and when he backed up, they said he swung a haymaker at Gotch. That if yeah. it would have hit him, it would have knocked him in the middle of <laughs> next week. They said the referee jumped in between and kind of pushed Gotch away, and they said you you see the ref hair move from the air yeah. off that fist when it went by both of them. Yeah, they said he would have knocked him cold if he would have hit him with that punch. And then, if you punch somebody, that's automatic DQ. You can't punch somebody in a wrestling match. Yeah. Um, you know, now, later on, it. Yeah. but when they started working, then Katie barred the door. But, yeah, when these legitimate contests, one punch was enough to get you DQ'd. Yeah. <laughs> and he swung a haymaker. Most of the fouls were butts with the, or palm strikes, yeah. head butts, or elbows. Mm-hmm. Jenkins liked to elbow Gotch. Yeah. If Gotch started the dirty tactics with him, Jenkins would wait for him to try to go around his back and elbow back <laughs> elbow him. <laughs> so, but Woof. it was an effective deterrent against that because Gotch beat a lot of people by just following them, and they would get frustrated, or you know, yeah. he won a lot of matches that way. He beat Jenkins. I think the first time he beat Jenkins. Yeah. That was the match where Jenkins came and punched him. <laughs> Tried to punch him. He didn't connect with the punch. Yeah. Because they were like, if he would have connected with that punch, you know, he would have still lost the title, but Gotch would have been carried out. Um, Jenkins gets the job, becomes a self-defense instructor with the military academy, and basically goes into semi-retirement. Yeah. So I think his whole career, he maybe had 72 matches yeah. during that. 20-year time frame and realize he was active the first 15 years mm-hmm. and then the last seven or so. I'm sorry, he was active the first 13 years. Yeah. Because if I remember rightly, he debuted in, eight, in 92, 1892 when he was 20. Mm-hmm. It's in the book, book folks, I promise you. <laughs> if you don't want to read the book, just take my word for it. I'm pretty sure he started in 1892. Mm-hmm. He wrestled till about 1912. Yeah. But he only had a handful of matches after 1906. No, I'm sorry. He only had a handful of matches after 1905. He lost the title to Gotch 
in early 1906 and didn't have another wrestling match, I don't think, for a year or two. Mm-hmm. Then he had another match with Gotch. Then he wrestled a couple other people. Then he had another match with Gotch. And he usually, if I remember right, I'm almost positive that this is correct. Yeah. He was only wrestling during the summer when he was off from the military. Yeah, that is cool. Yeah. So his whole career, he had 72 matches. Yeah. That's significant. Gotch probably had maybe 100. Mm-hmm. Ed Strangler Lewis, who came along at the beginning, he was still wrestling legitimate contests at the beginning of his career. Yeah. But from 1970, when did he had his last, well, he had contests up until 1930, but there were very few and far between. Yeah. These were to settle promotional disputes. Mm-hmm. He had 6,000 matches. Yeah. So they, they, they went from wrestling a couple times a year, you know. Yeah. So a few guys I saw had eight or nine matches in a year mm-hmm. during the legitimate era. But, you know, they could do that in a month right? when they started working the matches and they were working towns and circuits and all of that. But a, sto- a more storied 72-match career, you're not going to see. Yeah. I've, I don't know if I'm ever going to do a book on Jenkins. Because I cover the lion's share of his career and mm-hmm. the competitive part of his career right? in this book on the American Heavyweight Championship. If I can get some good information about how he taught mm-hmm. at the academy. military academy and that, I might go back and do a try to cover all 72 matches. They're all contests. Try to find... Because some of the earlier ones aren't as easy to find. Not all the newspapers... Yeah. Covering matches like uh, J.H. McLaughlin, I know wrestled in the 1860s. I can't mm. find any accounts yeah. of his matches. But just like pro boxing, pro wrestling was illegal for quite a while. Right. So the newspapers wouldn't a lot of times cover it because they were covering illegal activity. Yeah. So that's why some of the prize fights that uh, the bare knuckle boxers did, some newspapers would cover them, but a lot of them wouldn't because. I think the papers that catered to the working class were more likely to carry those mm-hmm. than like a New York Times or yeah. something like that. So, any questions about Tom Jenkins? No. Uh, fought Teddy Roosevelt. That no, know, no. Tom Jenkins didn't fight Teddy. Not it was, was a, it was a middleweight champion. Middleweight champion. Okay. Yeah. He, he and he wrestled him. I mean, Tom and Jenkins it, still it, sounds it, like a badass. Well, he was. Yeah, but... Yeah, Tom Jenkins was a guy who would stretch it. Yeah. And he's not really that well-known, considering he was Gotch's toughest spot. Everybody knows about George Hagenspin mm-hmm. and the Gotch matches, because they were the biggest matches that ever occurred in this country at that time. The first match didn't... Gotch did as big a crowds as the first match yeah. in Kansas City with, like, Tom Jenkins. You know, yeah. I think they drew 8,000 fans for their last match in Kansas City, which Kansas City was always a very good wrestling time. Town. Right. In the first three decades of the 20th century, Kansas mm-hmm. City was a very good wrestling town. Yeah. The Goldust Trio promoted out there a lot because they could r- routinely draw 10,000 people to their cards there, which is, was a great uh, draw. Um, Missouri is just a wrestling state, isn't it? Yeah. St. Louis and Kansas. Yeah. Well, St. Louis was considered the wrestling capital for a long time. Yeah. And then, but the Gotch-Hackenschmidt match in Chicago in 1911, the second match, mm-hmm. 
drew 30,000 fans. But the outcome so disgusted people that they didn't draw 30,000 fans again until, um, I believe it was the match between Londis and Ed Strangler Lewis in New York. Londis drew 30,000 people. He's the biggest, to this day still, Mm -hmm. he is the biggest box office draw they ever had. There's probably other guys that have drawn more money because of pay-per-views. But when you're just talking about Gates and getting people to come into an arena to buy tickets, mm. Londis was Londis was selling out 100,000 seats, soccer stadiums, when he returned to Greece and did a tour over there. Yeah. But he would sell out $30,000. Yeah. Uh, state, which is th- oh, $30,000. 30,000 people. <laughs> he would draw a crowd of 30,000 yeah. people. He drew crowds of a hundred thousand when he went back to Greece. Yeah. You know, he's he's the biggest box office star. And yeah, Jenkins was definitely uh, a tough guy. And like I said, of Gotcha's opponents, he's the least known, and he's actually the one that gave Worked him the, the most the, trouble. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People know of Farmer Burns who discovered him. Mm-hmm. People know of George Hackenschmidt. A lot of people know of Zabisco because he beat Zabisco, but then would never wrestle him again. I wrote a book about that. Yeah. That's the only guy. He beat him once and would never give him a rematch. Uh, Zabisco was there for four more years, and Gotch wrestled three more years. He would not wrestle Zabisco. Yeah. Um, But a lot of people don't know about Tom Jenkins, and Tom Jenkins was the guy that was the only one that was really that competitive with him. Yeah, no, and uh, doing mostly, if not all, contests, you know, definitely. Okay, so that show that I had you watch Mm -hmm. was the Wrestling at the Chase program from, was it August 1st or August 2nd? I believe it was 1st. I believe you are right. Well, it would have been 1st and 2nd. Right. Now that I think about it, because they showed it Saturday night very early in the morning. Right. And then Sunday morning at 11, it would have been on. So that was, as I told you, that was the go-home show for the Friday night card mm-hmm. that they had at Keele Auditorium the following week. So why don't we talk about the show first, and then we'll talk about this card, because one of the things that kind of threw me off... Mm-hmm. Was that very first match on the show is Gene Lewis versus another guy. Um, Gene Lewis was not anybody I recognized. Yeah. I'm, I know I saw him wrestling back then, and I was watching every single week. Yeah. But it's, I saw that, I'm like, who are, they, who are they trying to... Because Lewis won. I expected the kid to win. Mm-hmm. Because that looked like a match that Sam Muchnick would put on every once in a while. When they were wanting to introduce a young guy to the fans, he yeah. wouldn't be at the arena yet for a while, but he would come on TV and he would get a bunch of wins over mm-hmm. preliminary guys, and then you'd start seeing him at the opening match. Yeah. But I'd never heard of either one of them. Right. Um, and I was like, well, this is an odd match, and Gene Lewis won it. Mm-hmm. But I, I discovered he was on the card that Friday wrestling Bobo Brazil. That's why mm-hmm. he was there. Um, the next match, I believe, was the ladies' match. Yes. And that was just a, an attraction for television. They were not on that card the yeah. following week. <clears throat> they might have been on the previous card, though. Mm-hmm. So usually, just like they booked Andre the Giant, just like they booked the Midgets, 
the ladies were considered an attraction. Yeah. So Fabulous Moolah was the person who managed them, and she would send the groups of ladies to the different territories, yeah. and they would do a week or two there, and then they would move on to the next territory, you know. So you yeah. might have them in, depending on the size of the territory and that, Sam could get them for a month if he wanted. Yeah. Because he taped all the shows at one time, and then he would have had them for a card. They weren't on this card, so they were probably on the card before this one. Mm-hmm. And then they were just on TV for a couple of the TV shows <coughs> as an attraction match. So Wendy Richter, who was one of the girls in that tag team match, yeah, would go on to become the women's, uh, the WWF at the time. Yeah. Women's Wrestling Champions. She had a match at the first WrestleMania where she beat Fabulous Moolah and Cindy Lauper, who was a big pop star at the time, yeah, was in her corner during that match. Yeah. But she, she always stood out because she was more athletic than a lot of Moolah's girls. And mm-hmm. she was big for a, a lady. She was like five foot ten. Yeah. Probably 150, 160 pounds. So she always kind of stood out anyway. Mm-hmm. And she would go on to have a good single run. So then the next match was the match that I wanted you to see. Yes. <coughs> that was the match with Ken Tara and Carrie Von Eric. Yes. And that one went to a draw, which a lot of times that would happen in St. Louis. Those are both main event guys. Yeah. Usually they're not going to go over on television over each other, mm-hmm. so they would wrestle to a draw. What did you think about that match, since that was a match I really wanted to see? I really <laughs> enjoyed it. Um, I thought that they, you know... I've never seen the Von Erichs wrestle. I've always heard you talk about them, but they were, you know, pretty competent in there. Um, and... Yeah, no. Ken Patera led that match. He was the veteran. Yes. And the one thing that Carrie did during the match was it was a little odd because usually the heel wouldn't kind of make the baby face look foolish like this. Mm-hmm. He stopped the pose for a second, and Patera comes off the, the turnbuckle and hits him in the head. Yeah. A lot of times they didn't do that to the baby face because they didn't want to make the, the good guy look like an idiot. Yeah. Because fans would be like, Look at this moron. I did think that was kind of off. It felt yeah, kind of it, it jagged. Was, it was odd to me. Yeah. Now, the Von Erichs were famous for being a little... Over the top? Well, they weren't hard to work with, but they described wrestling them as a polite street fight. A polite street yeah. fight? <laughs> they never complained about getting hit. Right. But they were always accused of being somewhat stiff. Although David and Carrie had less of a reputation than that than their brother Kevin. Yeah. I'll have you watch Kevin's match with Kabuki from mm-hmm. nineteen eighty two World Class. Yeah. That looks like a street fight. And at the end I could tell Kabuki had gotten tired of getting those potatoes. That's what they call him when they hit him too hard for real. Yeah. Because he retaliates <laughs> Kevin Funner's got a black eye shiner and <laughs> it looked like road rash over his eye where Kabuki yeah. started returning uh, fire. Now they said they never complained about it. Right. David and Carrie were definitely the smoother of the two. Mm-hmm. David was the best worker by miles. Yeah. The best wrestler. Sometimes I feel bad about using insider slang because yeah. I'm not an insider. You know, I'm somebody that does history on it. He was, to me, a much smoother, much better wrestler. Mm-hmm. When he was alive, David was my favorite. Yeah. I always wanted to develop a muscular physique like Carrie, but I 
always admired David Von Erich more in the ring. Yeah. Um, so I think when you watch him, you'll probably come to that. <coughs> As somebody who hasn't watched a lot of wrestling, mm-hmm. you'll notice he's much smoother yeah. than his brothers are. A bit more professional. Yeah, he was going to be the world champion. Yeah. But he died prematurely. And so then they gave it to Kerry. Kerry had some real issues outside of the ring, which yeah. led to him. Uh, and then the last match, uh, wasn't that the tag match? I believe so, yeah. So I, I've got to ask you a question. Yes. Because this is one of those things that when I look back now, I see how preposterous and ridiculous it was. But I despised him so much at the time. I, it didn't really click. But what did you think of Bulldog Bob Brown? A little goofy. Yeah. A little goofy. When, so now, in hindsight, and I've seen a lot of great wrestlers. Yeah. The two guys who were over in St. Louis, well, one guy was over and one guy was hated. Right. <clears throat> and people look at them both now and are like, oh my gosh, they're terrible. And when I look at him through my eyes now, I'm like, boy, he really was terrible. You know, <laughs> he's he's where he is because Bob Geigel's part owner of the the territory at this time. But I always considered, in hindsight, now that I know what I know. Mm-hmm. But even then, I kind of already kind of picked up on it when I was watching wrestling. That Rufus R. Jones, who was super over. Yeah. People look at Rufus R. Jones' matches now, and they hear him talk, and they're like, "How's this guy over?" I'm telling you. Kansas City was over. St. Louis, he was over. Yeah. People loved Rufus R. Jones. And people hated, despised Bulldog Bob Brown, who was a natural heel. Yeah. But when you look back on it now, it's like, I don't know if he was really past it, if he was always that bad. His matches do not yeah. hold up. At no. All. And he's always, somebody pointed out, and I noticed it, if you hit him in the chest, he grabs his ear. You, know, you you kick him in the leg, he grabs his ear. He does this sell thing where he reaches up and he grabs his ear every time he's selling pain. You know, I didn't really notice that until you kind of mentioned something. <laughs> you know, who gets kicked in the leg and grabs their ear? I think a better question is who has a tell with wrestling? <laughs> well, a lot of guys had that, but this was, this was worse than, than most. So, yeah, but they were the line. Right. If you were a good guy and you beat Bulldog Bob Brown, you were getting ready to challenge for the Missouri Heavyweight Championship or you were going to get wrestled at the world champion the next time he came back in town. Yeah. Because these were mid, lower mid-card guys, both Bulldog Bob Brown and Rufus R. Jones. Yeah. If you were a bad guy and you beat Rufus, you were getting ready to compete for the Missouri Heavyweight title or you were going to get a shot at the world champion when he came to town. Yeah. They were the line. You knew when someone beat them, they were getting ready to be elevated. Yes. Conversely, <laughs> you knew if they beat you, that person was on their way out of town. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the go-home show. Mm-hmm. And that led into the Friday night, August 7th show. And that show drew 10,414 fans. Yeah. Of which your Aunt Vicky and I might have been in that crowd. I don't remember this card particularly, mm. but we went to so many cards. Yeah. This is one. We had season tickets. We almost always went. I can't remember us missing too many unless one of us was sick or something. Yeah. 
And because both Carrie Von Erich and David Von Erich are on this card, that would have been definitely one we wanted to go to. Yeah. Because the Von Erichs were your Aunt Vicky's favorite wrestlers, they were my favorite wrestlers, and they were Aunt Sherry and Aunt Becky's favorite wrestlers too. Yeah. That card I told you about where Grandpa fell asleep. Yes. <laughs> that was David Von Erich versus Harley Race at the Checkerdome. Uh, and he took me, your Aunt Becky, your Aunt Sherry, and Mom to the yeah. matches. He hated them. But he, <laughs> right. but he took us because he knew we liked it. Yeah. And Sherry starts elbowing me, and I look down there, and there's Dad with his head down. 20,000 fans chanting, Go, David, go. <laughs> the Checker Dome is shaking. And your grandpa's down there with his head bent down asleep. <laughs> I can picture him in his green chair. Sitting in a, in a That's exactly what he looked like, only sitting in the stadium chair. <laughs> I never see anything like it. I'm like, that man can sleep through anything. So the curtain raiser yeah. for that show was J.J. Dillon and Buzz Tyler, and they defeated Bob Sweetan and Ron Sexton. Dillon pinned Sweetan at 9.01. Mm-hmm. Sweetan pinned Dillon at 3.21, and then Tyler pinned Sexton at 7.14. So that was the best two out of three falls match to open yeah. the night. And you could tell it didn't last very long. So the special attraction match was Dick the Bruiser and Kerry Von Erich, and they defeated Baron Von Roschke and Dick Murdoch in a tag match. I think this was an add-on. Kerry must have become available because the original advertisement, I saw that earlier in the week when I started looking for this. I told you I just put St. Louis Wrestling Club in August, and I realized, oh, that was the go-home show. That match was not advertised, and it would have been. Okay. Dick the Bruiser was on there as participating, but he didn't have an opponent or anything. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that they put that together at the... The, the final? The, yeah, those guys came yeah. available and they put that as a special attraction. And it definitely wasn't scheduled to go on second. That match would have been higher on the card. Yeah. But David had a prominent role that night, so that's why I think they kept Kerry down lower on the card that night. So remember I told you, why the heck do they got Gene Lewis on this? Yeah. The second match was actually the third match. That's why I know that that was kind of added in. Because mm-hmm. the second match was supposed to be Bobo Brazil versus Gene Lewis. So now that made sense. Bobo Brazil was one of the first great African-American wrestlers. Yeah. And um, there's no way Gene Lewis was going to beat him. He defeated Gene Lewis. Gene Lewis was disqualified for throwing Brazil... <clears throat> and direct referee Chuck Riley at 5 minutes and 41 seconds. And I'm sure Bobo put it on him pretty good before all that. But, yeah, yeah Bobo Brazil was a huge star. At this point in time, in 81, he would have probably been in his 50s. 50s, yeah. yeah. But still a big star. And big. He was, I'd say, six foot five, mm-hmm. Probably 270-ish. He's, yeah. he's a big man. Okay, the third match, which is actually the fourth match, Pat O'Connor pinned Bobby Jaggers at 5 minutes, 45 seconds. Pat O'Connor was the booker and future owner of the thing and could probably stretch Bobby Jaggers. Pat O'Connor was in his 50s here. Right. Probably shouldn't have been wrestling anymore, but he was also a legitimate wrestler. He'd been an amateur in Australia, Mm. and they put the NWA championship on him because he could actually wrestle. He probably could have stretched Jaggers. Who was 30 years younger than him would if he wanted to. Yeah. So, an odd pairing, mm-hmm. but they were both huge stars yeah. in St. Louis, and they're third from the top. David Von Erich and Rocky Johnson fought to a 20-minute draw. 
So you remember The Rock? Yes. Rocky Johnson is his father. Ah. And he was he was a huge star in St. Louis. David was a huge star. Rocky was a huge star. It was not unusual for Sam Muchnick to have good guys versus good guys, bad guys versus bad guys match. Right. Back then we called them scientific matches between the good guys. And yeah. the rule breakers was just rule breaker versus rule breaker. The semifinal was Ken Patera and Jack Briscoe fought to a draw when referee Chuck Riley disqualified both for getting out of hand at 14 minutes and two seconds. Right. <clears throat> I don't think either one of these guys was the Missouri champion at the time. They're both former champions. You know what? I think Kevin Von Erich was the Missouri champion at this time because they didn't have the Missouri title defended on this show. Mm-hmm. But um, Patera had been the former champion. Right. So Jack Briscoe. Yeah. And then the main event. And this is why I think we might have been there. Because I thought we saw Dusty Rhodes to defend the title against Ric Flair. Mm-hmm. Before he lost it to Ric Flair in Kansas City. Yeah. And this is the only time we would have got a chance to do that. Because he lost the title in September. Yeah. So this is the only time we would have seen it. So I think Aunt Vicky and I were here for this card. But the main event was Dusty Rhodes who retained his NWA World Heavyweight Championship by beating Nature Boy Ric Flair two out of three falls. Rhodes won the first and third falls. Rick won the second fall. And you did see an interview from Ric Flair on mm-hmm. that, that go-home show. Yeah. That was hyping up the match with him and Dusty. Yeah. Rick would beat Dusty in September, and Ric Flair was a long-time world champion. But that was the, the go-home show, so... You can see how some of those matches fed into the whole purpose of television back then. There, there was no pay per view. There was no uh, anything like that. Yeah. So the way you made money in wrestling in the eighties, actually up until the time pay per view really became a big thing mm. in the nineties. Pay per view started in the eighties, became huge in the nineties because most people could get it on their cable systems and that. Yeah, was to get people to come to the arenas. Mm-hmm. And the TV show was meant and utilized to get people to the arenas. Yes. So, you know, that's why you would have those matches where David would beat a Harley race in a non-title match. Because mm-hmm. now you want to come to the arena at Keel and see uh, a Harley defend his title against David Von because he just beat him on TV. Yeah. So, did I give you the attendance figures for that show? You did not. Okay, so that show drew 10,414 fans, which is a full house for Keel Auditorium. Yeah. I think Keel's official capacity, but they they were able to put seats on the floor, mm-hmm. which I don't think they could do during other concerts and stuff like that. So it was around 10,000 people. Yeah. So 10,414 is standing room only. They've got that thing, which they did. They yeah. sold standing room only tickets where people didn't have seats, yeah. but they would the fire marshal would let them in and stand. Mm-hmm. So that that was a SRO crowd there because yeah. that I know exceeded the seating capacity by a couple hundred at least. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that they were under ten thousand <laughs> seats, but who knows? Right. I, I could be off. It's been a long time since I looked at Keel Auditorium seating capacity, but. For some reason, a long time you've done it before, yeah. High nine. (laughs) Well, I looked it up because people were talking about Keel being a small building. I'm like, I don't think it was a small building, 
It was smaller than I thought. Yeah. But I think it was high nines as far as seating capacity. And that was for a regular performance. You know, yeah. you, you could move because there it wasn't auditorium seats on the floor where your Aunt Vicky and I were. It was folding chairs. Mm-hmm. So you could manipulate. And they also sold SRO tickets standing room only. Yeah. Which, I forget where that was. That might have been on the stage. Because the wrestlers would come down from each side of the stage. That's where the dressing rooms were at. Mm-hmm. And walk down the aisle. It was very rare for wrestlers to get attacked in St. Louis. Right. Um, a lot of other towns, wrestlers would get attacked. But it was rare for wrestlers to get attacked in St. Louis. It's like baseball, too, though. We we don't really attack people over right. that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. I think we've beat this stuff to death. So. Uh, yeah, it covered a lot of ground. <laughs> so, for the next episode, I've been wrestling around with what I want you to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want you to do some of the territory stuff, right. but I'm thinking about giving you a WrestleMania match. A WrestleMania? Okay. Yeah. Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Bret Hart from WrestleMania 12. Okay. Maybe one of the best WrestleMania matches of all time. And that'll also give you time to watch the Bat Whispers from 1930, which is back on YouTube. So remember I told you that Bob Kane created the Joker and the Batman off of two silent films. Yes. The Bat, yes. who was the bad guy in the Bat. I did watch that, yeah. And then the man who laughs, mm-hmm. the Joker is off of uh, Barkapet. That one I haven't seen. I need to I watch I can never say his name right, but um, he's the good guy in that. Yes. But he, you know, he's got that permanent smile on his face. That's where the Joker came from. Right. The Bat Whispers is the 1930 talking version of The Bat. Mm-hmm. So if you've not watched a lot of silent films like I have, yeah, it's easier to follow along. Right. So I always recommend people, hey, if you could, this is the film that... Yeah. Uh, which The Bat from 1926 is really the film that inspired Batman. But yeah. it's easier to understand. But I think we'll cover that. We'll do that match okay. um, next time. And then for our topic, you know who I found out loves Steve Austin? Who? My wife, Christina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, she, she was a big wrestling fan. Well, I was gonna say, didn't her dad watch wrestling? Yeah, no, and she goes, "Oh yeah, Steve Austin," because I told her we got that Elsa Gundo at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. So. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. He's he's got his brew, don't he? Yeah, he released an IPA and a lager. And all the wrestling fans bought the IPA and returned it because it tasted like garbage. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't realize the lager and, was going to be like regular beer. And you know what? I think that IPA is what they were drinking at WrestleMania. This it, year. Was. Yeah. it was. And that's why everybody swarmed everybody it. Everybody swarmed it and got it. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. Well, I'm not much of a beer drinker anyway, but I didn't know how that one was going to. The lager is what people want because that doesn't taste like American beer. Right. IPA. Nah, but but we gotta have a topic for next week's show yeah. as well. Steve Austin? Oh. No, I don't want to do anything that modern. We can no, talk, no. we could talk about Steve Austin, right? In the modern section of it, but but the historical section. What what I would propose is uh, is there a wrestler like historically that would be kind of close to Steve Austin's fame that we could cover? Ooh. Sort of a comparison of like, you know. Famous wrestlers then, famous wrestlers, well, then, but more modern. Right. Yeah. 
Because that would be interesting. Maybe if it's even like close to his size and stature. Well, you're going to have a hard time because he was probably about 6'2 and 260. Yeah. You don't have those guys until probably the 50s and 60s. Yeah. I mean, I think Dick the Bruiser could be a comparison to Steve Austin or a, uh, Brock Lesnar, but th- that's much more modern day. Right. Um, the one guy I was thinking about was John the Nebraska Tiger Man Pesic. Mm-hmm. He wrestled during the worked era, <clears throat> but he wrestled primarily, well, he wrestled during the worked area and he wrestled primarily work matches. Yeah. But he also took part in two of the more famous shoot contests yeah. to settle promotional disputes uh, in wrestling at the t- at that time in the 20s. Right. And, uh, but who he would compare with today, um, Pesek might compare with a I wouldn't say a Kurt Angle. We can think about it, you know. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely something to think about because there are some that I think would be. So a John Tigerman Pesic mm-hmm. would transfer more easily to like a Brett the Hitman Hart, who's wrestling Stone Cold. Yes. In, in that, because Brett had been an amateur wrestler, he knew a little bit of legitimate wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe just find a match that's close to, like, the anticipation and kind of wrestlers. Yeah. yeah. So, as the listeners can tell, this is an evolving podcast. Yeah, we yeah no. We're... Which we're going to continue to... Yeah. It, it's... I can easily come up with... I, I can talk yeah. about... Any, I can come in here and talk about William Muldoon. Right. But I want it to be interesting, informative... But still... Engaging. Yeah and, yeah, and like you said, I do like the idea of maybe a comparable wrestler from the past with a comparable wrestler from the future. Yeah. Because it really... <coughs> a lot of people will say it's a completely different art form today, but it, it isn't. Wrestlers have been working matches since yeah. the 1860s. There's a lot more acrobatics today, but mm. not from everybody. Yeah, a Roman Reigns Brock Lesnar match mm-hmm. would hold up in the 1950s, the yeah. 1920s, probably even the 1890s. You know, a yeah. hard hitting. They they do more gaga. They wouldn't have done that back then, <clears throat> but the basics, the bare bones of that match, yeah. would hold up in those eras. Those guys would hold up in those eras. And it'll also be like interesting to just see how the how wrestling has changed and also stayed the same by comparing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The the biggest differences are So what I think hurt wrestling the most. How long have we gone on this? An hour and fifteen minutes, but you can okay. finish your thought. So we're gonna end it right here. <laughs> okay. And we're gonna come back next time and we are gonna talk about John, the Tiger Man Pesic. And then if we can link it up with some current wrestlers, yeah. we'll do that. But I think the biggest detriment to wrestling and why so many fans like me, mm-hmm. I lapsed for a number of years. Right. I started coming back because some people that knew 
I was a wrestling fan from before, recommended Ring of Honor and NXT to me. Mm-hmm. And I like both of those promotions. Yeah. That, that's what brought me back into watching. Because I hadn't watched. I quit watching around 2009 or 10. And I was only a casual fan. After I got back into UFC, I, I was a casual fan. And I, I yeah. really, between 2009 and 2016 or 17, I didn't watch wrestling. Yeah. But I did come back, and there there are things that I like today. But I still preferred what I grew up on, and that's why so many other fans have lapsed, is because back in the era of kayfabe, they didn't want people to know it was worked. Yeah. If you really paid attention, you knew something was off. Was off. Something. Yeah. Something was going on. You didn't know how they were doing it, but you knew there was some... You'd have the Von Ayers ripping off their shirts and arguing who to fight. Yeah. Yeah. You knew that stuff, but, but you suspended disbelief, just like yeah. you do in a great TV or movie. Since Vince came out and said, this is all an exhibition. Right. It has led to very bad habits in wrestling that I think turn off. Most fans who grew up on classic pro wrestling in the 70s and the 80s. I came into the yeah. very, very tail end of the 70s. Uh-huh. I much more became a fan in the 80s. Yeah. The early 90s were horrible in both WCW and WWF, but then WWF and particularly in the mid-90s with Stone Cold, Bret Hart and all them, they kind of brought it back. But they weren't winking at the camera. Yes. But... From the time Vince admitted this is all an exhibition, the wrestlers started peeling the curtain back more and more, <coughs> winking at the audience, yes. doing all of these things that would take you out of the wrestling match. To me, that's the biggest problem in wrestling today is too much winking at the audience, too much right. stupid comedy that is not funny, too much hijinks that has no place and on a wrestling program. Yeah. If you're watching, I'm, I'm sure I've used this analogy two or three times, but I'm going to use it again because sure. a lot of people have seen Vikings. Right. If you were watching an intense section of the Vikings, and I, I won't use Ivar because he's my favorite to use in these. I'm going to use Ragnar this time. Okay. If Ragnar is getting ready to raid this English town, and he's jumped off the boat, and he's charged the beach... And he's having a sword fight with all these guys. I'm just going to have to watch this damn show, aren't I? That's a great show. <laughs> and he stops in the middle and looks at the camera and says, I know this is really intense. Yeah. And puts his arm around one of the English soldiers and goes, but this is my buddy Joe. We're just actors. They pay us to do yeah. this. And we're just really good at what we're doing. Yeah. So don't get worked up. Don't get upset. This is just acting. Yeah. And then they go back and have their sword fight. Nobody would ever watch that show ever again. Yeah. But the wrestlers routinely do that week in and week out. Wink at the camera, do right. these preposterous things that nobody would speak in ways that nobody ever would speak, much less a professional athlete. And looking at it from my point of view, because <coughs> I was born, you know, very late 90s, 99. Mm-hmm. So when I grew up, Vince was out of his heyday, and all I ever heard about Vince was bad things. And I think a lot of people my age kind of got the same thing, and that's what kind of turned off the younger generation. Because yeah. didn't he pull that, like, 
say it was all hoax like in the 90s. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So. Late 80s, early 90s, he did that because he didn't want to pay the athletic commissions anymore. But I'll tell you what, everybody in my age range loved Triple H. So I think with Triple H running things, you might see a resurgence. Right. Well, yeah. it's a good honeymoon period right now. A lot of people yeah. are excited about him being back. And the right. shows have been better under him. And the talent wants to come back. That's telling. Right. That the talent who didn't want to go back to WWE if you put a gun to their head. Right. As soon as Triple H is in charge of creative, and I was like, I want my release. Huh? <laughs> I yeah. want to go back to WWE. So I think there's some real hopeful signs for the first time in a long time. Because the one thing about Triple H... Mm-hmm. He is a wrestling fan. Yeah. And he is a student. And he is the same age as me. We're six mm-hmm. months apart. So he grew up on the same stuff I liked. He loved watching Ric Flair matches. And stuff yeah. Like that. <clears throat> so he saw it growing up as a kid. He was a fan. It's what he always wanted to do. He knows the history. He's seen the great yeah. things that people have done in the past. So it's hopeful because here's a wrestling fan in charge of the wrestling program. That yeah, has a yeah. sense of what's going on. It's like whenever... God, I'm forgetting his name and I hate it. But uh, when the director of the Marvel movies took over, he was a fan of the Marvel comics. And that's why I feel like the movies are really good. And I can see that, that kind of... Kevin Feige? Yes, Kevin Feige. The director of the whole franchise. I remember James Gunn, but not Feige. Yeah, well, he's a director, but Feige yeah. runs the whole division. But I think that's kind of what wrestling fans will see with Triple H in charge. Because yeah. he's a fan... He cares about the properties he's talking about. Right. You know. Right. Well, I think we've... Yeah, we're almost an hour and a half. Exhausted every subject, and people have probably passed out by now. But you get two weeks to recover before we come back yeah. for episode 10. So, if you like this episode, we'd love it if you would leave us a rating. Yeah. And for myself and Caleb, we've talked to you guys way too long this week. So, bye-bye, everybody. Oh, that's fun. Bye.